Just consider how essential is the reality of resurrection to your life. Not just speaking of Jesus' resurrection, but the resurrection of the dead. That there will someday be a resurrection. That all the dead will be risen. Either to reign with Christ, to live with Christ, to dwell with God, and He will be their God, and we will be His people. Or to be judged, condemned, and forever to bear the wrath of God. Continuing in rebellion against God, in hatred for God, for His rule and His reign over all things. How essential is the truth of the resurrection to your life? Does it matter to your life, your purposes? Does it affect the way you approach being a Christian, being faithful to the roles that God has given you? How you prioritize the things in your life? Your faith, your belief. Does the, res- does the resurrection affect that? And according to the passage we read this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, it must. If you remember in 1 Corinthians 15, he tells us in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching and our faith is in vain. That if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile or worthless, unnecessary. If Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sin. It tells us that everyone who has died, if there is not a resurrection, has just gone out of existence And he says, if there is no resurrection, then we are the most pitiful of all people to be pitied. I just want you to think, if you look at your life and you say, if I remove the truth of the resurrection, does does my faith become futile? Do my purposes lose their point? Would my life be pitiful? Would people look at it and say, if there is no resurrection, what are you even living for? Can you attach your faith, your purposes, your way of life to the fact that there will be a bodily resurrection of all people? If it is so essential that Paul says our life, our faith is futile, our sin remains, and we are to be pitied above all, The resurrection should affect every aspect of our life. I want to encourage you this morning and and seek to help you, uh, as I've been helped this week, just dwelling on the reality of the resurrection. In looking forward to this passage for months and just thinking and, you know, hoping a long time ago that I could make it here by Easter and that didn't happen. But the true hope of the resurrection and how it affects our lives currently and what it means for us in Christ. Because there are many in our world and in the ancient world that would deny a resurrection. They would deny any afterlife. They would deny that there is anything to come in the future. 
And in context, as we work our way through the book of Mark, we've seen in chapter 11, the critics of Christ, those who are trying to dethrone Christ's authority, have done so in one, trying to challenge him theologically. They first asked him, where do you get the authority to do these things? And Jesus asked them, I'll answer your question about authority if you can tell me what the ministry of John is. And you remember, they won't. They won't answer him. They say, we don't know, because they're scared that if they say John was the forerunner of the Messiah, well, Jesus is that Messiah. And if they say John was just a man doing his own thing, the people will be outraged. And so they know the answer. Then they come to him again, and Jesus says to them and reveals their hearts, their deceitful, lying hearts about the kingdom of God. And he gives them the parable of the tenants, that he has a garden. The garden is Israel, and he has tenants, the rulers of Israel. At this point, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he proclaims to them that they are seeking to kill the Son of God, just as Israel has killed the prophets before him. And they hear the parable, and they realize what he is saying to them, and they are outraged. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they went away, Mark 12, 12 tells us. In 13, then, the Pharisees join up with the Herodians, who are political Jews at the time, and are looking for the kingdom of Rome to continue, and want the Roman authority because it's good for them and helpful for them. They're very paganist uh, in their view of earth, but hold on to some small things of the Jewish religion. And so the Pharisees then seek to trap Jesus in his words and ask about taxes. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? In the hopes that Jesus will say, no, Caesar is not God, pay him nothing. And Jesus answers rightly, trusting in the providence of God that Caesar has been put over the people for the glory of God, for the goodness of government, and also for the judgment of all mankind. That even the rule of man, though it protects man, is perverted. All authority fails. But praise God, he has not ended authority. And Jesus answers in a way they did not expect, making clear both God's care for them in providence through government and God's reign over them in all things as his. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar." a coin with the picture of Caesar on it, and give to God what is God's. Mankind, all of their hearts. He points them to their distraction by the fleeting battles of earth and points them back to the reality that they belong to God. And so we see again, they come to him to seek to trap him. In verse 18, we see, And the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So they're, they're quoting out of Deuteronomy, and they're quoting what is called Levrite marriage. And they are right to quote there, and they're right to look there. Uh, and the commands here are that if a man had a wife, he dies, there is no child, that man's single brothers are to marry that woman. 
and then to have children with her, as married people often do, and that those children are to take on the name of the firstborn. And so it was a command in Israel, uh, and it was a command not of sexual morality and not of polygamy. Uh, it was a command of keeping the line of the family or keeping the name of the family uh, and not having Israel go out to marry foreign wives, but to continue what God had promised in Israel. And so you might be disturbed by the fact that you would have to marry a woman that your brother picked and not a woman that you picked, and the American inside you all, I marry for love. Uh, and God says, you will love this woman, and you will care for her, and you will raise children for the glory of God with her. And so the Sadducees know this law, and, uh, and they find this as a way to point out what they see a failure in the doctrine of resurrection. They cannot accept the resurrection. They will not see that mankind will resurrect because it can't make sense to them. They, they want to battle it. And so in verse 20, they create a hypothetical, hypothetical story, and one that in the ancient world appears that had been used prior to that. And in verse 20, he says, uh, they say to him rather, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. The second took her and died leaving no offspring. The third likewise, and all the way to the seventh, all seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to the... Whoops, sorry, I skipped something. And the third likewise, verse 22, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died, verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. The Sadducees can only see the present world. The Sadducees bring up this hypothetical situation. We've got a man. He dies. Now, according to the law, his brother marries her. No children. Dies. His brother. Seven times. In the end, no children. Now they die. In the resurrection, who's married? The Sadducees feel like they have this philosophical, theological just conundrum that Jesus is not going to be able to answer. They assume we've got him, right? They're taking their best of the best. These guys are the YouTube debaters. We're going to take the most charismatic, the TED Talkers, the ones that can take the speech and make sure that their words are not fightable. And they come to Jesus with this situation. What are you going to do? Now there's a motivation, a reason these men want to throw what they feel is an impossible situation before Jesus. Uh, and and I, it's a lame pastor joke, but it's been a benefit to me for decades uh, when I'm studying my Bible. And maybe you're already aware of what it is. When you're trying to clarify what, what is, who are the Pharisees, who are the Sadducees, uh, the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection as on your handout, you can see Acts 23, 6-8, the clarity of God's Word gives us this truth. Not just in Mark, but we see also in verse 8 of Acts 23, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. The Sadducees are materialists. They do not believe in an afterlife. They do not believe in a resurrection. They do not believe that there is a spiritual world that functions in and with the physical world. 
So they think this is all there is. And that's why they're sad, you see. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Because they don't believe in an afterlife, they, they believe this is all it is. And so the Sadducees come to Christ with not sadness, unfortunately. They should, they should be sad because they can only see the present world. They are materialists. There's less known about the Sadducees than the Pharisees, but we know the authority of Scripture tells us they were politically dominant. They managed the temples. Uh, the names of the men who were the high priest and the temple leaders, uh, they were the Sadducees. While the Pharisees kind of chased Jesus all over Israel, the Sadducees were far too busy making far too much money running and perverting the temple. And so the Sadducees are only really seen when Jesus is in Jerusalem and when he is disrupting their system of authority. And the Sadducees are very attached to the present world. Uh, they were quite legalistic uh, in, in their beliefs, uh, but they did so for the sake of their own benefit, their own righteousness, their own wealth. They didn't believe in any spiritual realm, or in other words, they were completely materialists. And again, the clearest point of that is Acts 23, verse 8. And if you uh, look at them and the Sadducees and their consideration of the Pharisees, they saw the Pharisees' belief of resurrection as ridiculous. They, they could not wrap their mind around this. And as they used the right text for their authority, the Word of God, they ignore the whole text. They believe they're so sophisticated, they're so refined, they're so noble in their reasoning that they will show Jesus how to really view the world. And so they give their story. And the Sadducees, what they can't see, Jesus declares. Jesus declares what the Sadducees don't see, the Scripture and the power of God. Look with me at verse 24. As they give their, their long story, Jesus states their story in verse 24, saying to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus says their issue is that they know neither the Scripture, the Word of God, or the power of God. And these men are going to be highly offended by that statement. Uh, though they are materialists, again, they are legalists, the firmest of, and they hold to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, or the Pentateuch, uh, as the only authority. They do not recognize the prophets, they do not recognize uh, the histories, the Psalms, the Proverbs as authoritative. They, they hold only to the Torah. And God addresses that issue through the mouth of Christ. He proclaims, God incarnate, that they neglect both the Scripture and the power of God. 
And he deals with those issues then in reverse. The power of God. They deny the power of God through their argument. How can the resurrection come about because we will have these marriages that won't be able to be blended? How are we going to have a polygamous or a polyamorous? Is that the the phrase? It's it's a different phrase. You don't need to know it, nor do you need to practice it. Uh, But a woman with multiple husbands, whose wife is she going to be? And Jesus states first, they don't understand the power of God. Jesus says to them, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. He declares they deny what they can't imagine, what they can't picture, what they don't see. How can it come about? They're materialists. They're sure that a resurrection would create too many problems. They trust their pragmatic observations of the world, their reasoning, their evaluation. They limit the power of God by the power of their perception. I can't see that. Like many, reason with the thoughts of men, the science of men, the history of men, the perception of men, the power of men, they have determined where to place their faith in men. And that is where they gather their conclusions. They have reasoned and created God in their own image, rather than recognizing they were created in the image of God. They limit the will and the power and the authority of God because they say, how could this be? We have no means to understand it. They've reasoned and created God in their own image. Their worship is a worship of man. And he makes clear, God is not confused about what he created, nor his plans. God does not hear their statement. Jesus does not hear their statement and go, well, if there was a resurrection, couldn't it be like? Do you notice that? Jesus' answer to them is not uh, taken as their argument is equal to his. He, He doesn't say, well, let's consider if there was. Let's consider that this could be solved by... No, Jesus goes directly to the truth and he says, when they rise. He doesn't say, if they were to, couldn't God do this? No. No, he says, when they rise. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. He makes clear that God is not confused about what he created nor his plans for the future. Marriage no longer exists. Marriage is not part of God's eternal plan. There is no more marriage, no more birth, no more babies in the resurrection. Marriage and procreation is not part of God's eternal plan. And and some of you this morning, you might have already been aware of that. Some of you, you, you I might have just crushed you. And just stating it so frankly, like maybe you're holding your spouse's hand right now. And you're like, that's not true. <laughs> you don't listen to Jake. I will love you forever. That very well can be true. You will love them forever. You'll love them better. 
you will love them more so. The gift of marriage is a temporary picture of the grace and the faithfulness and the power of God. Male and female created to display the image of God and created to, in this life, be fully dependent upon each other for any life to continue. Created with a purpose, created with an intention, created in particular roles, and created needful of one another to fulfill the commands of God. We're told in 1 Corinthians 11 that that man was not created for woman, but woman for man. But they are both needful for one another. Adam Adam is created, then Eve is created as a helpmate, a needful helpmate. And 1 Corinthians 11 tells us, nevertheless, as woman came from man, Eve came from Adam's rib, so now man comes from woman. Their necessity, they are complementary, they exist needful of each other. And procreation and marital recreation, I'll just say, uh, all of those good blessings from God are temporary gifts to display the eternal picture. And so Jesus takes for them what they are so attached to and so entwined with and and so dependent upon that this creation and the way it exists now is my hope. I want this, similar to the rich young ruler. If you remember, it it wasn't that he wanted eternal life. It's that he wanted this life to last for eternity. And the Sadducees are the same. Their hope is so wrapped up in this life. And maybe not their marriages, but their power and their authority. And they want it to stay. But Jesus says, no, marriage is not an eternal gift. It is a temporary one. He says, in eternity, they will be like the angels. What does that mean? I could lead you down a rabbit trail of speculation, right? You could just read Mark and you could go, that means all kinds of things. I'm not even going to put speculation into your head. Because about this, we do not have to speculate. Luke makes it very clear to us. Luke 20, 36, account of the same story. Luke 20, 36, he says, They will be equal or like the angels, for they cannot die anymore because they are like the angels. So this is not a statement that people become angels. This is not meaning that you know, we move from being people to being angels. You get your wings and a bell rings and everybody's happy in a black and white movie. That is not the plan or the story of God. What he is proclaiming is like the angels, there will no longer be life and death. There will only be life to God. Like the angels, there will no longer be marriage and division and conflict and all of those things. We will forever live to the glory and to the praise of God. As people, both body and spirit, living as a soul, like the angels, immortal. But as Danny taught us last week, while we have dominion now as people a little lower than the angels, like Christ... Risen as man above the angels, we will reign above the angels. Like them, immortal, forever, eternal. While your mind likely floods with all kinds of questions about the resurrection, then what will it be like, and how can God do this, and and you're trying to figure that out, God has already anticipated your questions, right? Maybe you didn't know, right? Yes, He has. 
First Corinthians 15 answers many of them. It answers them somewhat in a Romans 9 way of, I can't picture this, and, and who are you to assume that you could picture what God does? 1 Corinthians 15 says that this present life is but a seed of the life to come. The Pharisees would teach that resurrection was in some sense judgment, that everyone would be raised with the same ailments, the same issues, the same marriage, the same problems. And, and so I don't know why the Pharisees weren't sad, you see, because they assumed this life would just go on. They wanted a resurrection, but they wanted a resurrection that allowed them to keep their power and their authority and their pleasure and their wealth from this life. The Pharisees pictured a resurrection of their authority. The Sadducees refused a resurrection, and Christ proclaimed a resurrection of God's authority, where all things bow to Him. 1 John 2, or rather 1 John 3, tells us, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But when He appears... But when He comes, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. That when Christ comes, we will be like Christ. Why? Because we shall see Him as He is. One day, as Revelation proclaims, and, and we'll get to, He will dwell with us, we will dwell with Him. He will be our God, and we will be His people. And 1 John tells us, what should we do then? Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Lives to make that theirs. And we'll look at other passages in just a little while that declare that. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, so it is with the resurrection that what is sown is perishable, is decaying, is fleeting, Right? I'm at the age where I continue to hear the jokes and unfortunately at times resonate with the jokes that waking up is painful, right? And, and wanting to embrace that. I need a new body just because this one hurts, right? I, I didn't do anything last night. I literally just slept, but I woke up and I'm like, what's wrong with my collarbone? How did that happen, right? And so we start thinking along those lines of I just need a new one of these, I just need the better, earlier, newer model, right? Your kids are the iPhone 15 and you're a flip phone. <laughs> like if I could just upgrade, if I could just be like Knox and sleep like this and fall on the floor and bash my head and get up and go, where's the candy? <laughs> but that's not what he's saying. That's not his promises. It's not that your body will be renewed. It's not that your perishable body will be restarted in a perishable way. He says, what is sown perishable, what is planted in the ground as a seed, will become something completely different, something imperishable. The promise that a seed is a picture of what is being sown now, I think is a very helpful promise. Right? right now, we have little California poppies growing up all over our property because Lauren went out and she threw spices that are meant for Costco muffins all over our yard. <laughs> and, I, and I feel like, what are you doing? Those belong to muffins. That's what they're for. Don't you know what those are, right? 
But no, those little poppy seeds that look like just a brown black piece of sand go into the ground. And somehow, that little black piece of sand, even if it's laid dormant for years, goes into the ground and becomes an amazing plant that grows beautiful flowers that people will let other people get killed on the 15 freeway so they can see them. (laughs) It's incredible. You think of an oak tree, right? You think of a sequoia. Like you could go to Sequoia and you can buy the seed for a Sequoia tree. Just a little acorn. You take that acorn and you go stand next to a giant Sequoia that might be wider than this whole room and a couple hundred feet tall. And you go, you're telling me that this, what appears to be a dead piece of bark, will go into the ground and become that? Like we're just too used to that. Or we don't even actually know that. We feel like seeds belong in muffins and produce comes from a shelf. We don't have any idea to fathom what he's saying. But he's saying what you know now, as good as it is, and as much as you enjoy it, and as much blessing and kindness and pictures of the grace of God is in it, it is merely a seed to be sown. And when it's dead and over, what is coming... You, you can't even imagine. So often, even in Peter, it is imagined in the contrary terms that we are waiting for what is imperishable and undefiled and unfading because all we know is perishing and defiled and fading. We await a resurrection. We await what the Sadducees thought was too hard to fathom. Too many issues, too many questions, so they denied. They cannot fathom it. They cannot place their hope in the power of God. But, but Jesus says that their issue is not just that they don't have big enough imaginations. It's not just that they can't acknowledge that there are spiritual things that exist outside of them. Right? Many in our society, while many are materialists, and they say, I can't picture an afterlife, I can't see it, I can't feel it, I, I don't believe it. Many say, oh yeah, there's a power. There's a force. I feel it all the time. Just the force of Mother Nature, Mother Earth, my grandma, the force of whatever. There's something that exists. I recognize a higher power. They see in creation, and they know all of this couldn't have come from somewhere. They just have the general knowledge of man. But Jesus doesn't say, your problem is that you're not spiritual enough. He says that you know neither the Scripture or the power of God. He doesn't point the power of God to something of their own imagination. He doesn't say they just need to hear better arguments. He doesn't say just get the best Sadducee and the best Pharisee to debate the resurrection and then the Pharisee will wipe the floor with him because he went to Pharisee Harvard. No, it's not that he needs a better argument. It's not that he needs more rational thinking. It's not that he needs to be a more spiritual man. It's that he denies the power of God because he denies the authority of Scripture. He does not listen to the text which declares. And so Jesus points secondly to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, 
how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus makes a very subtle point from the text of Scripture. He points to the words of Scripture and says these words are written for a purpose. He says it is the words that proclaim the truth. He he points just to the tense in which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are spoken of. He does not say, I am the God who was of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. He doesn't say, I am the God of what was Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and the God of Jacob. And he says, he is the God of the living, not the dead. That while these men might have died, they await a resurrection. It's not an issue that it couldn't be believed supernaturally. It's not a matter of realizing there's just a spiritual realm. It is they haven't discovered the power of God because they will not believe the text. Their primary issue is not their denying the supernatural, but they're ignoring and neglecting the supernatural authority of God's Word. The promises of God are not invisible spiritual ideas. They are not hidden secrets or puzzles. They are literal promises. When the Bible speaks of resurrection and new life in salvation, it does not mean a vague half-promise that is to be fulfilled later some other way, to be reinterpreted to mean something less. A resurrected life is not just a better life than other people on earth. A resurrected life is not just how to find out to run a better business. A resurrected life is not just to fix your marriage. Your marriage will not exist in the resurrection. A resurrected life is a new, eternal, forever, imperishable life. A resurrected life is, yes, in some ways, what we taste in seeing the first fruit, the resurrection of Christ. But it is not this life. It is the life to come. It's not a new mentality. It's not a new worldview. It's not a new lease on life. It is not figurative. A resurrected life is our current hope, our eternal destiny, our future reality, that we will dwell with Him and our home will be with Him. We will exist as body and spirit forever with God. While Christ declares it to them here, showing that God does not declare He is the God of dead men, but of living men, but men who have died and await a resurrection, it is His expectation that they would see it. And it's my expectation that you know that. You rest in that. You are not like the Sadducees. You believe in the canon of Scripture. You know the reality of the truth. And while Christ in grace, I think it's important to look, He doesn't turn to where they don't see authority. Right? He could have said, it's because you deny all of the books after Moses. It's because you deny the prophets. It's because you deny the history. It's because you deny the Psalms of David. No, he says, let's go there to Exodus when Moses is at the burning bush. And what does God say to him? I am the God of the living, not the God of the dead. But you, my friend, I, I praise God that you are not limited 
to the Pentateuch. You know that the revelation of God did not end in the Pentateuch. Even earlier, it's declared. And so what I want to do to encourage you this morning is to walk you through some of my favorite passages in the Old Testament and the New that will give examples to you that it is the power of God and the Scripture of God that declares the resurrection. I'm going to go fast. I listed the uh, verse addresses in your handout, and I'm just going to walk through them quickly. Most likely, the oldest book of the Old Testament, Job. Job, in 19, verse 25 through 27, as Job is mourning all that has happened, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Job knows there is one who will redeem him. He knows there is one who will pay for him, purchase him for God. And he knows that that one will stand on the earth. And this is not speaking of Christ's incarnation. It is speaking of the resurrection of man. How do we know this? Look what Job says again and again. He says, at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And we could say, okay, yes, in the last times, Jesus stood upon the earth. But verse 26, he says, after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, in my body, I shall see God. You say, maybe he's just making a metaphor. Well, if he is, the metaphor he's making is that in a physical body, he is going to see him because he goes on in verse 27 to say, whom I shall see for myself. Maybe he's just speaking of metaphoric scene. And my eyes, he's speaking of these, shall behold. Job does not just expect that a Redeemer will come and he will die and he will rise again, but that Job will stand in a body with eyes seeing that Redeemer. And he says that reality makes his heart faint within him. David writes in Psalm 16, and he rejoices that in his flesh, in his body, he dwells secure because he is not abandoned in death. He will not see decay, but will in God's presence forever rejoice. He says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh, my body also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. He says the same in Psalm 17. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake... I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Isaiah proclaims it very clearly in Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For dew is a dew of light. The earth will give birth to the dead. As he proclaims the end 
throughout Isaiah 24 and on for quite a while. In the coming kingdom of Christ and the resurrection of the dead, he declares, Israel will be resurrected. The dead, those in dust, will awake, and the earth will bring forth the dead. Isaiah, as he proclaims the end times from 37 on to the end of the book, actually probably starting more in 36, Ezekiel, sorry, 37, he says, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. O my people, I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. He promises a resurrection. He promises that the people of Israel will be resurrected and they will be placed in their land. And in verse 14, he makes this promise by his name. He says, then you shall know when he does this, you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. That's why Paul says if we deny the resurrection, we deny the faith. God has made promises of resurrection. He proclaims the future resurrection. Daniel 12, 1 through 2 does the same. At that time, arise Michael, the prince who's in charge of your people, speaking of the archangel Michael. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as has never been seen since there was a nation until that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. They shall be saved from it. And everyone whose name is written in the book of life and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, the dead, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. He promises a resurrection. Hosea 13, 13 through 14, he says, The pains of childbirth come for him. He is an unwise son. At the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Such a great passage for Mother's Day. Verse 14, he says, Though Israel is a stubborn child like Tucker that will not be born. Tucker, got you out of there whether you wanted to come or not. And God makes a promise. He is not stopped by a stubborn child. He says in verse 14, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Hosea declares that God will ransom and redeem them from death, removing the plague of sin and death. And in the New Testament, we see the same. Jesus teaches three times in Mark 8, 31, 9, 31, and 10, 34 that He will resurrect. He says that the rulers of Israel and of Rome will kill Him, and three days later He will rise. And He teaches the resurrection, and the people of God teach it following Him. The saints knew it. One of my favorite examples, Martha, in John eleven twenty four, 24, as Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He says, Lazarus will be raised. And Martha's response, she's such a theological student of Christ, she knows. And she thinks she knows the answer already. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. 
In Acts 4, 1 and 2, we see Peter and John are arrested because they're teaching the resurrection of Christ and therefore proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. In Acts 17 and 23, we see that Paul is mocked both by the world in Acts 17 for proclaiming the resurrection and by the Sadducees in, verse, in chapter 23 for proclaiming it. 2 Corinthians 5, 4 through 5 says, For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. As we read this morning from 1 Corinthians 15, and the whole chapter tells us the hope of the resurrection. But here in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, we're encouraged that our groaning is not because our collarbone. Our groaning is not because of our age. Our groaning is not just because this body decays, but because we know this body is mortal. This body is clothed perishably. This body is in the presence of sin. But he says, He has prepared us for this very purpose. What purpose? To be risen. To be risen from the dead eternally with Him. And how do we know that will come about? Paul says, He's given us the Spirit as a pledge. And the same as we looked at in Peter, 1 Peter, a few weeks ago uh, in, in community groups, that though this present life we have necessary and grievous trials, that they for us create the reminder of a faith that He has put in us, and we obtain now the outcome of the salvation of our souls. Our sanctification declares to us the future resurrection because we are justified. Philippians 3, 10-11, Paul says, He strives, He leaves everything behind. Why? That I might know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering, being comforted, and rather conformed to his death, in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says he strives forsaking everything to be resurrected with Christ. He reminds us our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven, for which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't speaking of the incarnation, this is speaking of the second coming. That we wait for the coming of Christ. Why? Verse 21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with His glorious body by His working through us, which He is able to subject all things to Himself. That when He comes and returns and everything is put in subject to Him, you, under His subjection, will be conformed to the glory of Christ. Resurrected, new. Second Timothy warns that there will be false teachers who say the resurrection has already come, and they are doing so upsetting the faith. Even more glorious, Revelation 20 recounts when we will be resurrected. Revelation 20 verse 5 says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. What's the first resurrection? 
The throne of Christ come down, verse 4, and the judgment was given to him, and I saw the souls of all those who had been beheaded because of their witness of Jesus, because of the word of God, and all those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead or their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The first resurrection of all his people. Revelation 20 says there is a second resurrection after the millennial reign. Verse 12 of chapter 20 says, Then, after the thousand years has ended, then I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. The dead in Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. The the de then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. These are not figurative promises. These are literal promises of God. His people will be risen in the likeness of Christ. They will reign with Him for a thousand years and then forever. And all people, all men, all women, all the dead, in the ground and in the ocean, will be brought out of their graves. And they will be brought before the throne of Christ. And they will be judged. The resurrection is not a Christian belief. It is a promised, eternal, purposed, proclaimed comfort to all believers. And fearful warning of the condemnation that will come to all who reject Christ. All mankind will be risen. As Hosea said, and Isaiah said, and Ezekiel said, some to glory and some to death. The resurrection matters because it is the promise of God. If there is no resurrection, your faith, your hope, your life is in vain. You are to be pitied among all people. And the joyous proclamation of the resurrection in Revelation 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, for there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. At the last... Resurrected, freed from sin, freed from death, freed from mourning, all has passed, and such a dwelling is the dwelling we desire. Do you not long to say with Paul that I press on to make the resurrection mine, that ours, because Christ has made me his own, I long for it to be mine. And even though we know, Faith Bible, we know the power of God and the Word of God. But do we neglect such a hope? We are in danger as a young church, as those whose bodies are merely a joke in their ailing. 
those whose bodies are in vigor of life, having children and raising them. And we see our children as our possessions and our pleasure and our purpose. We are in danger of taking what is a good creation of God and seeing our marriage as our entire life. As though our hope and pleasure and purpose rest just in that. We're more concerned about a date night for intimacy with our spouse rather than a regular time for intimacy with Christ. We think the solution to our parenting is we need more practical advice from the Word of God. And I'm so thankful for Sean reminding us again, the practical advice from the Word of God is love God with all. Seek Him with all. Let Him be your all and be a faithful parent like He is a faithful God. We want to talk about parenting so much here, and I understand because I have six children. Parenting's a lot of my life. But we need to recognize there are few passages that speak of your parenting. There's a whole Word of God that proclaims to you the hope of a Christian in salvation, in grace, in being saved now, and the resurrection that awaits us. When your wife is your sister in Christ, whom you for the first million years will probably love more than anyone else because you spent 40 to 60 with her. But praise God, there will come a time where it is not the intimacy of marriage that makes us think that's the closest that life could be, but the picture removed for the presence of the dwelling of God. Christ was never married, nor did He ever have children, and He did not miss His purpose. Rather than our marriage and our families being a good gift from God to display His kindness, we're in danger. We're in danger that our marriage and our family could become our purpose. It is a current, temporary means of displaying our purpose. And it is a good one. It is right. Marriage and family is a present circumstance for many of us. It is a good circumstance in which we should pursue to be faithful and to know and to understand the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of Christ, the submission of the church, the authority of God. All of those things are pictured in God's design for marriage and family. And we must seek the purity of Christ to live in them. We must seek to let us have our hope rested in that. Because tomorrow, all of your children might die. Tomorrow, your spouse might no longer be your comfort, but she might tell you, Job, curse God and die. And you, your hope might be crushed. All of my children are gone. My wife is worse than a dripping sink. Not my wife, but the figurative wife. It's telling me to curse God and die. Will you with Job raise your heart, humbled before God, taking the circumstances of life, trusting the hand of God, that in all circumstance, whatever comes before you. In Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth, and I shall see Him with my eyes. Isn't that our hope? We know Job didn't do that perfectly. We know Job didn't do that with perfection. But the Word of God proclaims he did it in righteousness. 
The Word of God proclaims that God was kind enough to humble him, to take his eyes off his current circumstance, and to place his eyes on his Redeemer. Christian, Faith Bible Menifee, young families, faithful believers, people who love Christ. We're the Church of Christ. Not marriage, not family. Christ. Christ alone is our hope. All things surrender and to submit to Christ. How do you be the greatest at anything? You realize He is the greatest. You humble yourself before Him. You wait for Him, as John tells us, seeking to be pure as He is pure. Parent well. Encourage one another well. Love one another well in your marriage. But love it is the picture, not the prize, not the purpose. I've had many examples in my life of faithful marriages, but there's one that always rings in my mind. It was a man whose wife was at the end of her life not the wife he married, ill and dying and perishing. And he loved her faithfully. He suffered for her in a way that often reminded me. I struggle to Lauren to love Lauren when she's, she's practically perfect in every way. She's like stinking Mary Poppins. <laughs> and this man's wife is dependent upon him for everything. Bedridden, sick, can't remember, can't communicate, can't know what's going on. And he loved her. He ran the race of marriage well because he was faithful to love Christ well. Faithful to run in that marriage for the name of Christ. I think of him often when I think of my marriage. And let that be our hope. Not that we find all our pleasure in our marriage but we find our pleasure in glorifying Christ whatever circumstance we're in. To live for His glory because our Redeemer lives. And the saints around you, your spouse, your friends, your children, their children, if their hope is in Christ, will rise with them. And the love you have for your children and your spouse is perishable in comparison to the imperishable hope of all of God's people submitted to Him as His bride. Let that be our hope. Let us not be practical Sadducees that just want this life and forget that we have a greater hope in Christ.